Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 99, Hanging On. Now first, a big thanks to Bonistov for increasing his Patreon pledge and helping to make this past September the best month for Patreon pledges since the very first two months after I started taking pledges on Patreon at all. So, you know, it's been, I think, over three years since I started on Patreon and getting this kind of sudden rush of new support is really amazing, means a lot. And thanks so much to everyone who's pledging and, and helping out. Or if you can't, just, you know, telling your friends about it, sending me a nice email, all of that really means a lot to me. So thanks to all of you. Now, last time, we saw how the Tulip Era, a period of luxury and idleness on the part of the Ottoman elite and the Sultan, followed the Ottomans regaining some of their territory and prestige following the disastrous Treaty of Karlovitz. During this time, the Sultan and the Ottoman elite lived lavishly, using this consumption to hold and maintain power instead of doing so through military conquest as they had before. The result was that power devolved to regional rulers and away from the Sultan. All the while, the Janissaries consolidated their own power, finally ending the Devshirme and completing their transformation from a fearful and disciplined military order to a loose grouping of men in all manner of professions chiefly concerned with maintaining the status quo, economically, militarily, and politically, as doing so preserved their own power. The Ottomans and the Russians also got lucky at this, as this time allowed them to take advantage of collapsing Safavid power to annex vast swaths of territory. But all this has consequences as Ottoman weakness eventually allowed the Safavid Persians to rise once again and quickly retake all of the lands the Ottomans had so recently conquered. This triggered a revolt by the Janissaries, which forced Sultan Ahmed to step down in favor of his nephew, now Sultan Mahmud I. With that revolt, the Tulip period was over. But what remained to be seen is just what would replace it. At the moment we left off last time, Sultan Ahmed had gone off to a peaceful retirement, and Constantinople was in the hands of Janissary rebels who had placed their own supporters in many senior positions. Now, whether the new Sultan Mahmud would assert himself over the Janissaries was yet unknown. The first event to move things along was, well, yet more rumblings off in the east. Not content with the gains made the previous year, the new Safavid Shah wanted more. He wanted all of the Caucasus under Safavid Persian control. So, early in 1731, he set out at the head of an 18,000-man army intent on taking Armenia, Georgia, and Dagestan from the Ottomans. He found success initially, defeating an Ottoman force near Yerevan and putting that city under siege. But, now, a half-Venetian, half-Turkish man named Hekimolu Ali Pasha was on the case. He and his army quickly moved in, cut the Safavid lines of communication and supply, forcing them to break their siege of Yerevan and withdraw. 
The Ottomans then further outmaneuvered the Safavids, threatening their home territories before actually taking Tabriz, easily defeating the Safavids' relatively inexperienced troops. The result of this humiliation was the Treaty of Ahmed Pasha, in which the Safavids lost nearly all of their recent gains against the Ottomans. That this disastrous campaign was led by the Shah himself, while the military commander Nader, who had won all those major previous battles against the Ottomans, was way off in the east of the kind of Safavid Empire fighting, made the whole situation a lot worse for the Shah. You know, he now basically looked like a fool, and the commander used this failure and this well bad look for him to depose the Shah in favor of the Shah's infant son, which. Well, we all know how, how effective infants are rulers, and so this effectively put Nader, the commander, in charge. Now, with this new set of circumstances, it seemed less likely that the Ottomans would be able to keep their recent gains now that the Safavid Persian Empire was under the control of an extreme, extremely able military commander. Now, while all of this had been going on, the new sultan was dealing with matters at home. In late 1731, several high officials, along with the Khan of Crimea, assisted Sultan Mahmud in finally overthrowing the Janissaries, who had effectively been running the empire for a year. Halil, the Albanian Janissary who had led the rebellion, along with 7,000 of his followers, were all put to death. By 1733, that Safavid leader, Nader, decided that it was time to go back on the offensive against the Ottomans. His plan was to quickly take Baghdad and then trade it for the Caucasus provinces that he had just lost. However, he was defeated by the Ottomans and forced to retreat. But, well, he couldn't end things there, as he knew without military victory he would likely be overthrown. After all, the entire basis of his power and his sort of taking control of the state was his military victories. He didn't have the legitimacy of being a member of the Safavid royal family. So, well, he couldn't let the situation stand. But for him, all this would have to wait until the next year and its campaigning season. In the meantime, in Bulgaria, another Bulgarian man named Parteni Pavlovich from Silistra was traveling throughout the country attempting to organize an uprising in favor of the Austrians. He was well-traveled and well-educated, having studied in both Silistra, Bucharest, and Italy and Macedonia. Now remember, at this point, the Austrians controlled Belgrade, and so they weren't actually too, too far away. As he traveled, Pavlovich actually at some point stayed in the real monastery, studied some of the texts there, and even left some of his own notes in the margins, which we still have. But by 1736, he had been discovered and imprisoned by the Ottomans for his activities. Now, around this time, as the war with the Persians was still kind of ongoing, Russia saw its chance to get in on the action and signed an alliance with the Persians. Russia was both deeply annoyed with the Crimean raids on the Ukrainian Cossack state, as well as their expansion into the Caucasus. So essentially, as it would throughout their history, the Ottomans and Russia were fighting on these two fronts. The Russians also wished to regain Azov and access to the Black Sea. And, well, they ultimately decided that, as a part of the deal, they would give the Safavid Persians back all the territory that the Russians had recently taken from them in exchange for help in beating the Ottomans. With this agreement in hand, the Persians could fight in the Caucasus without worrying that the Russians might sneak up behind them and 
have a surprise attack of some kind. As a result, the Persian Shah Nadar spent most of 1735 fighting in Georgia and Armenia, laying sieges and taking various Ottoman fortresses. The Ottomans sent an army of over 100,000 to meet him, under the command of Koprulu Abdullah Pasha, son of Koprulu Fazl Mustafa Pasha, who, you'll remember, had fought so much of the Great Turkish War on the Ottoman side. The Ottomans and the Persians met in Armenia, though the Ottomans initially rushed into battle when they realized that they had only encountered an advanced guard instead of the whole Persian army. They saw their opportunity and wanted to have a kind of defeat-in-detail situation where they could defeat this smaller advanced guard before meeting the whole Persian army on what would be then better terms. But this kind of rush to attack and the belief that they were facing such a small force made the Ottomans complacent. They were subsequently shocked when Persian musketeers rushed in to attack as the Ottomans were preparing, and as a result, the Persians captured their artillery. Subsequently, the Persians were able to neutralize all of this Ottoman artillery and then use their own mobile artillery to fire mercilessly and with total impunity, the Ottomans having really no way to respond. Just at this moment of weakness, the Persians also had a hidden contingent of soldiers who rushed out to flank the Ottomans, while Persian cavalry surged forward to block Ottoman retreat. The result was that the Ottomans were massacred, and Koprul Abdullah Pasha was beheaded, a rather ignominious end to the son and the grandson of some of the greatest grand viziers the Ottomans had ever seen. Overall, the battle was a catastrophic defeat. 80,000 Ottomans had met only around 15 to 18,000 Persians, and yet had somehow been utterly defeated, with barely 8,000 soldiers making it back to the Ottoman city of Kars. With the magnitude of this loss, it was clear to everyone that the war was over. There was no way the Ottomans could continue to fight after taking such losses. Thus, the Russian plan to engage in a joint attack with the Persians just, well, didn't work because the war with Persia ended that year. And that year, 1735, the Russians were still preparing to mount their first major offensive. The Persians now effectively controlled the Caucasus, and, well, we can say their rise has been remarkable, because just a few short years previously, the Ottomans, Russians, and Afghans were carving them up into pieces, and it looked like they were going to vanish from the map. Anyways, getting back to it, though, it was midway through the next year, 1736, that the Russian army finally went on the offensive, storming the fortress which protected the land entrance to the Crimean Peninsula before taking the Crimean capital of Bakhtasaray. The Crimean Khan fled the peninsula, and the Russians retook the fortress of Azov. The Khan was then deposed by Sultan Mahmud for his incompetence and for daring to flee ahead of the Russians. The next year, the Russians again ravaged Crimea, but their old friends, supply problems, and plague crippled their army and forced the Russians to retreat back into Ukraine. But within months, that army was back, taking a critical fortress on the peninsula. Meanwhile, a separate Russian army had taken yet more fortresses around Azov before moving into Crimea itself and helping to take yet more Ottoman fortresses there. At the same time, July of 1737, Austria decided that this was a good opportunity to enter into war as well, seeing the chance to expand yet further on their gains made in the last war, while the Ottomans were busy fighting the Russians, and of course having just taken massive losses against the Persians. And yet, 
despite despite the fact that by all circumstances, this should have been a cakewalk for the Austrians. The Ottomans were terribly, terribly weakened. The first Austrian foray into Ottoman territory that August led to their complete defeat by a far smaller Ottoman force at the Battle of Banja Luka in Bosnia. At the same time, Serbs still in Ottoman territories led an uprising in support of the Austrians, and there were also Bulgarian uprisings in and around Pirot, Kustendil, and Dupnica. But within weeks, one of their leaders, a man named Simeon from Samokov, was caught and hanged in Sofia. And, well, you know the history of all these Bulgarian uprisings against the Ottomans, and so what happened afterwards shouldn't come as a surprise. By the time the first snows came of that winter, the Bulgarian portion of the uprisings had been completely crushed, and the Ottoman reprisals, as always, were brutal. Now, the next year, 1738, was relatively quiet on all fronts. Though the Russians were forced to withdraw from some of their Crimean possessions by yet more outbreaks of plague. The Ottomans ultimately announced an amnesty for the remaining Bulgarian rebels in an attempt to restore more stability in those lands as the Ottomans prepared to go on the offensive against the Austrians. The Ottomans may have been able to rather easily put down that Bulgarian rebellion, but still the prospect of Bulgarian rebels acting in these territories which are right on the supply lines leading to the Austrian front was something the Ottomans simply couldn't tolerate. So, in essence, Bulgaria was too important in a, of a kind of geographical location to allow further unrest while the Ottomans were fighting. Now, by 1739, the Ottomans were a lot more prepared. An army of 100,000 soldiers moved towards Belgrade that July. They first met a far smaller Austrian force at Groka, near Belgrade. The Austrians weren't really ready for the fight, but they still met the Ottomans in prepared positions. After fighting long into the night, the Austrians were forced to withdraw to Belgrade. At this point, the Ottomans moved in and laid siege to the fortress city. The Austrians were, for their part, shocked by this defeat, having frankly gotten used to their easy victories in the last war. But clearly, complacency and the lack of a commander as capable of, as Eugene of Savoy, who had led the Austrian forces in the last war, were all getting the better of the Austrians this time. At Belgrade, it really showed. There, it was clear the Austrians had not learned their lesson, and after a 51-day siege, the city's commander was forced to set the Danubian fleet on fire and surrender. Now, the Austrians were terrified at this point and were ready to sign a quick peace immediately, even though the Russians were still fighting. Clearly, the Russians just couldn't catch a break when it came to allies at this point. The Treaty of Belgrade saw the end of the Kingdom of Serbia as the Ottomans pushed their border back up to the Danube and Sava rivers, retaking lands in Bosnia and the Banat of Temeshvar. There's a map of this on the website. You can see the lands that the Ottomans retook. All of this triggered the second great migration of the Serbs as yet more Serbian refugees fled north of the Danube out of Ottoman and into Austrian-controlled lands. Remember, this and the first great migration of Serbs will ultimately have a major impact on the region as it really kind of redistributed where Serbs lived in the Balkans and, well, helped contribute to the fact that places like Vojvodina are part of Serbia today. Now, Although the Ottomans did, as a part of this treaty, also grant the Austrians the right to be the official protectors of all Christians in Ottoman territory, which was a major snub against Russia, which desperately wanted this status for itself. So why were they fighting over this? Well, in essence, it was number one about prestige. 
if you as a country were the protector of Christians in the Ottoman Empire, you know, you were sort of a protector of millions of Christians and it really meant something. But it could also be a nice kind of casus belli, a nice reason to go to war uh, if you needed it against the Austrians. You could point to any of the number of abuses of Christians in the empire and say, as you know, the protector of these Christians, we now need to go to war. So it was a very convenient status. Now, another critical point is how the Ottomans once again had strong French support in the negotiations with Austria. France was returning to its old role as a major Ottoman ally in Europe and was very concerned about balancing Austria's growing influence. That renewed friendship is going to have major consequences, but for now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now while the Austrians were negotiating, the Russians fought on. In August, two huge Russian and Ottoman armies met near the fortress of Khotyn in modern Ukraine. The Ottomans tried and failed to outflank the Russians, while the Russians used this distraction to quickly advance on the Ottoman center and take the positions there. The Russians pushed the Ottomans back, then quickly taking the fortress before moving in to occupy Wallachia. Yet, despite these victories, the Russians had to reckon with the withdrawal of Austria from the war. Far from the initial possibility of a Russian and Persian united front, or even a Russian-Austrian-Persian united front, Russia was now alone. And, you know, essentially concerned about its position, it decided to sue for peace. Despite their victories, the Russians were forced, in the Treaty of Nice, to give up their ambitions to annex Crimea or Moldavia. And while they were allowed to keep Azov and build a port there, the port could not be fortified and the Russians were forbidden from having a fleet on the Black Sea itself. So, in essence, you know, this whole series of wars looked really, really bad for the Ottomans. The war against Persia, the war against Russia, and the war against Austria. And yet, somehow, the, Aust- the Ottomans had really come out pretty okay from all of them. So, it was a very near-run thing. But despite this fact, despite the fact that the Ottomans hadn't really faced nearly the disaster that they could have, it was still very clear to the Ottomans and to everyone else that they were falling behind militarily. That's why the Ottomans at this point decided to enlist the help of some French military officers to help modernize their army. These French officials started to enter the Ottoman Empire and assist them in improving their cannon and musket technology, which frankly is a bit ironic considering how the Ottomans had once been such pioneers in these fields. Soon, in 1740, French merchants were also granted special trading rights within the empire in an attempt to further solidify that alliance. In 1741, more rumblings of the slowly developing Bulgarian national revival came from Vienna. There, a man named Christopher Zeroforovich, born on the shores of Lake Joran, near where Greece, Bulgaria, and North Macedonia all meet today, well, he was getting involved with raising Bulgarian national consciousness. He was a talented engraver, and in that year he published his masterpiece, the Stematographia. He translated the book into Serbian from Old Church Slavonic, and it contained engravings of important Serbian and Bulgarian saints and coats of arms. In fact, his depiction of the Bulgarian coat of arms would eventually be used by the third Bulgarian state. He was also an early proponent of pan-South Slavism, something we'll discuss a lot more in the future, but in short, it's the idea that all of the Southern Slavs should basically be part of one state and should be considered kind of one group of people, one nation. 
As such, he identified his family as being Bulgarian, but partially owing to the years he spent in Belgrade and all the works with Serbia, he also identified as Serbian. This may sound weird, but if you're a pan-South Slavist, then it's really not weird at all because you consider these to be part of kind of the same group. Today, he's considered to be, in effect, both Serbian and Bulgarian. Overall, his national consciousness and attempts to further spread information about the Bulgarian and Serbian royal houses and their histories is one of the earliest examples of the national revival movements that will soon sweep across the Balkans. But meanwhile, that Persian resurgence off to the east was entering yet a new phase. Following their last war, which ended in 1736, the Persians had turned and invaded the Mughal Empire in India, an Ottoman ally. Delhi was sacked and the Mughals were put on a path to decline, which would eventually allow the British East India Company to move into that power vacuum and ultimately take control of the entire subcontinent. So really, in a way, you know, this fighting between the Ottomans and the Persians helped kick off what would eventually be the British conquest of India. But in the far shorter term, the result of this war was that the Persians were able to take an immense amount of wealth from India, which they could now use to fund a new war against the Ottomans. The Persian leader, Nader Shah, was determined, in particular this time, to regain Baghdad and Mosul. But really, on the larger scale, he dreamed of a single empire which stretched from India to Constantinople, based in Persia. To accomplish this, he amassed an enormous army and invaded the Ottoman Empire, quickly taking Kirkuk and Erbil before getting bogged down in a siege of Mosul. As the siege dragged on, revolts back home forced Nader Shah to retreat. Meanwhile, in Georgia, one prince decided to ally with the Ottomans in an attempt to throw the Persians out. But, well, it didn't really go anywhere. In 1744, the Persians moved north, laying siege to Kars, that great Ottoman fortress city in the high Armenian plateau, before being forced to abandon the siege in order to go put down a revolt in Dagestan. So clearly, you know, Persian control of the Caucasus is a bit iffy as these revolts keep throwing them off. The next year, the Persians again returned to attack Kars and, learning that an Ottoman army was in the area, decided to build fortifications on that exact same hill where earlier in this episode and 10 years earlier in the timeline, they had so utterly defeated the Ottomans and ended the last war. Now, when the armies met on this previously so bloody field, the resulting battle was initially just a slugfest, with the great Persian commander being forced to essentially command from the rear due to health problems. But finally, he decided that health problems or not, he had to get into the fight, and so he personally led a massive force of 40,000 cavalry and an enormous flanking maneuver, which successfully broke the Ottomans, who fled back to their camp. The next day, that camp was encircled by the Persians, and the two forces traded artillery fire as the Ottomans were basically on the brink of mutiny, and ultimately they decided to abandon their camp with all of its equipment and try to flee for their lives during the night. However, the next day, the Persians discovered this, found them, and encircled them once again. At this moment, Nader Shah received word of yet another great Persian victory at the siege of Mosul, and sent envoys with this news to convince the Ottoman army to surrender only discovered that the Ottomans had already mutinied and that the Pasha who was leading them was dead, either by suicide or murdered by the soldiers themselves, we're not quite sure. The Ottomans 
frankly, hearing this news and already in mutiny, began to flee en masse and were cut down as they fled by Persian cavalry. Now, at this moment, both Ottoman armies in Iraq and Armenia had been utterly destroyed, and the invasion path into the Ottoman Empire was wide open. But Nader Shah decided to negotiate a peace? Yeah, he did. The Ottomans were powerless and would basically have to enforce anything that was offered. And so, Nader Shah offered something. The treaty was finalized in 1746, and the results were rather shocking for the Ottomans. Sure, the border was returned to that which had been agreed to about a century earlier in 1639, essentially the modern borders between Iran and Turkey and Iraq, with Turkey and Iraq being Ottoman territories and Iran being a Persian one. Now, this was shocking because, well, it left Baghdad as an Ottoman city, despite Nader's stated aim of conquering it. And frankly, you know, the Persians had had a complete and total military victory, and yet they had taken almost no territory. Otherwise, the, the treaty also had the Ottomans normalize relations and see, kind of recognize Nader's family as legitimate rulers, which was important. Nader needed that legitimacy. The Ottomans also recognized Shia Islam as a legal sect of Islam, whereas previously the Sunni Ottomans had basically considered them to be heretics and had no legal rights. It also allowed Persian pilgrims to go to Mecca. So, you know, that's nice. But all in all, the treaty's terms were extremely light and why? Why was Nader Shah allowing the Ottomans to get off so easily? Well, the answer is actually somewhat simple. Not, it seems that at this point, Nader was basically going insane. He was very old and having some severe kind of, uh, you could say, mental problems. And at this point, he was actually beginning to ruthlessly punish his own people. And within a year of the treaty, he was actually assassinated. Now, frankly, it was a very ironic end for one of the greatest military commanders of Persian history who had once dealt such crippling blows against the Ottomans, bringing Persia from almost total subjugation to a regional superpower once again. Now, moving away, that same year of his death, 1747, there was unrest in Razgrad, which is near Bansko in Bulgaria. A local Ottoman noble and his son, were brutalizing the local population by both murdering people and taking exorbitant taxes. The resulting small uprising caused some devastation, but was locally contained. This is kind of a good example of one of the big reasons why we're starting to see a lot more unrest in the Ottoman Empire is basically that, as we've talked about, the empire has become much more decentralized. So, while the kind of central Ottoman government generally wasn't kind of running around abusing the Bulgarian population just for the sake of it, because you know, it didn't want uprisings. You know, the Ottomans wanted Bulgarians to just be quiet and pay their taxes. Uh, but now that local kind of rulers were basically running their own affairs with very little interference from the central Ottoman government, you had a situation where if any one of those rulers happened to be a bit of a nut job or have a cruel vindictive streak, they could basically do whatever they wanted, abuse the local population, and trigger violence and uprisings, which is exactly what's starting to happen. And this case in Razgrad is a very early example of that. So we're going to see a lot more of these uh, kind of brutal acts against Bulgarians, but I think it's important to note that this isn't a result of kind of any central planning on the part of the Ottoman state. Quite the opposite, they are very upset about all this and would love to reverse it by further centralizing power, but they can't seem to do it at this point. So just to give you some context there. Now, all in all, 
Unrest in Bulgaria is clearly, though, on the rise as the Ottomans kind of limp along, occasionally winning battles, but just as often losing them. But despite the losses, the Ottomans are hanging on. The viziers are running the empire while the sultan writes poetry, and greater local control means that lo- nobles like those in Razgrad can act with impunity as the empire faces the consequences of its decentralization. Next time, we'll see where these trends take us as the slow awakening of Bulgarian national consciousness occurs alongside further deterioration of Ottoman military capabilities. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And, well, I'll catch you guys in the next one.